So, um, first of all, thanks very much, everybody, for coming. Um, what we've put together uh, is um, a, a, a program with, with three main parts. We're going to look first at values and values-based practice. Um, and then Ashot's going to tell us how that's played out in his role as a vascular surgeon. Then we'll come back to a bit on Montgomery. Um, does the name Montgomery ring a bell with anyone? Montgomery Judgment? Who's heard of it? So, okay, so we're going to say a bit about Montgomery. Um, Mike is then going to um, just comment uh, from a slightly different angle on what we've been covering, and then you'll chair a bit of a final discussion session. Um, so, um, values and values-based practice. Now, we're going to approach this, um, I, I hope you'll go along with this. Uh, we're going to do this actually through a little bit of interactive work. Um, I'm, I'm going to struggle here because I can't move the microphone, but um, this is uh, an exercise that needs pencil and paper or a computer. Has everybody got something to write with? Anybody need to borrow a pencil? <laughs> we, we actually want you, we, we need you to write something down, so, okay. So we're just, chap uh, just at the back, we're just going to do a bit of exercise. So the exercise is write down the first three words that come into your head that mean values to you. Write your own three words down, uh, then compare with your neighbor, but write your own three words down first. Uh, Ashok's going to scribe. Um, who'd like to volunteer three words? Integrity. Uh, hang on, so this lady, yes? Um, phrases, is that okay? Say again. Phrases. Yes. Yep. So moral code. Yes. And ethical framework. Yes. And reasoned behaviour. We can't read that. Okay. Well, well, we'll come back to this in a sec. So we've got moral code, ethical framework, reasoned behaviour. We'll have to rely on your short-term memory. <laughs> reasoned behaviour. Yeah. Sorry, there was somebody over here about to give us some work. Yes. Integrity. You ready, Ashok? No. Yes. Reasoned behaviour? Yes. <laughs> okay, so the next three. Trust. Integrity, trust, principles. and principles. Great. So, this guy? Yeah. He's a surgeon, so. I know, he's having trouble with this. <laughs> Can't spell. Three words, Ashok. Yeah. Ethics. Ethics, properties, and morals. Ethics, what was the second one? Properties. properties. Ethics, properties, and morals. What do you mean by properties? I think that, that Joe was thinking along um, synonyms for the word value. So the so levels and properties, right? So the, what's the value of the ALT? That's close yes, to my heart. That's a, that's a that's 
we continue over that soon. <clears throat> um, what about this lady? What, you, you had three for us. So, so being corporate, um, I rate delivery and passion excellent. So <laughs> <laughs> um, I would also say that it's the only set of values in any, I've worked in a number of different trusts that actually are memorable and I think mean something. So, yeah. Um, Shall we write those up? Yep. Can you remember? No. Compassionate <laughs> <laughs> excellence, did you say? Delivering compassionate excellence. Right, so um, I'm just going to, can you hear me all right? Because I'm a bit far from the microphone, but if we just read this out, um, listen to the words, and then I'm going to ask you to put your hand up if you wrote down a word that isn't already up here, okay? Isn't already up here. So we've got moral code, um, ethical framework, reasoned behavior, ethics, properties, morals, compassionate excellence, uh, standards, data, numbers, principles, trust, integrity. Now, could you put your hand up? The people I didn't ask, put your hand up if you wrote down a word that isn't already up there. Put your hand up. So pretty well everybody in the room I haven't asked. So what's the message? Variation. Yeah, huge variety. Um, and values is one of those words. Actually, another one is evidence that we sort of take for granted. We use it all the time. We have trust values. And yet, pretty well everybody in this room, when I say values and values-based practice, you've got different associations in your head. Right? So what we're starting from is that actually values are highly diverse. Um, this is a list of some of the many words that come up. Uh, this list is actually from a medical student seminar we did, but any group of people, you get more than about three or four people and you come up with a, 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 a very diverse list, but B actually, a, sorry, let me uh, just go back to that. You, you also get actually a good sense of the range of things that values is about. Now, it's, it's, this group actually is different from our medical student group in that you've actually spotted that quite apart from the kind of moral uh, values that we're, we're broadly talking about here, values has a completely different meaning, which is the value of the hemoglobin, that, that sense of numbers and data, yeah? And in fact, if you Google search for you know, literature on values, what you get is several hundred million hits all about the value of the hemoglobin is X, Y, and Z. And it's extremely difficult to retrieve literature on the values base of, 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 of medical practice. So highly diverse. Now, it's not, um, it's not uh, inchoate, but it's a matter, matter of individual diversity individual diversity. And that word individual is going to be really important and run right through everything we'll be talking about, including uh, the commentary that Mikey Dunn's giving us towards the end. So there are lots of resources for working with values. Um, we have ethos uh, with ethics. There's people working in the medical humanities. Um, some of you may use the tools of decision analysis, decision support tools. Health economics, of course, is is, is, is key to the way that we uh, try and make sense of the economics of, of healthcare. Um, what this concept of values-based practice adds is an approach that very much focuses on how do we come to a balanced decision within all these diverse values, 
building on a process that's very much about clinical skills, clinical skills. I'll come back to what this looks like in just a moment. But the idea is that just as we need a process to help us with complex and conflicting evidence, so we need a process to help us with complex and conflicting values, right? So values-based practice, it doesn't give you, say, this is the right thing to do. What it does do is to say, where you're working with these diversity of values, here is a process that actually makes, helps us to make sense of a decision in a particular context. So very much like the itch behind evidence-based practice, evidence-based practice doesn't give you the answer. It says, out of all the complex conflicting evidence we've got at the moment, our best shot is X. This is essentially the same thought. Out of all the complex conflicting values in play, our best shot is X, right? Uh, we'll have a chance to discuss some of this later on, but this is the, the model of values-based practice, and I uh, apologize if it looks a little bit over-complex, but essentially what it's saying is that the process is down the left-hand side, and you can see it builds on clinical skills. Uh, the first area of clinical skill is very much raising awareness of values and of the diversity of values. We've just done a little bit about that. Um, the model of service delivery is that multidisciplinary, person-centered, familiar model, uh, interpreted in a particular way. Specific and rather strong links between evidence-based and values-based components of decision-making. And this concept of partnership in decision-making, very much a high-profile high thing now about shared decision-making. And those together support balanced decision-making within frameworks of shared values. The concept of dissensus is about, uh, instead of with consensus, you're eliminating certain things in order to get to an answer. With dissensus, the values remain in play as a framework that could be balanced sometimes one way, sometimes another. So quite a bit to it, but the core is the clinical skills. And here's another exercise. We, we time to do this. Yeah, so, so this time we're going to give you some bad news in the clinic right now that uh, you've got the early symptoms of a potentially fatal disease. Uh, the good news is that NICE has approved and also funded uh, two possible treatments. And treatment A gives you a guaranteed period X of remission uh, and then with your normal quality of life and then sudden death at the end, uh, whereas treatment B gives you a 50 50-50 uh, chance of kill or cure. It kind of sounds a bit like a surgical uh, treatment for something like ruptured aneurysm maybe, although I'm pleased to say that the mortality for ruptured aneurysm in this hospital is 20%, not 50-50. Um, so the decision you have to make uh, is for you today, if you were given this news by Simon Travis in his clinic and uh, you had to make a decision which treatment you're going to go for, how long would you want a period X to be for you to choose treatment A over the 50-50. So what would you want X in weeks, months, or years for you to have made that decision? And if it's a personal decision for you to make, and if you want to write down that number, uh, that'd be really good. Uh, or have that number in your head. So it's your decision, how long period of remission would you want? Um, David. Well, that's the only information you've got. You've got a really terrible surgeon as your clinician <laughs> who's saying, that's the thing. You've probably got a cardiac surgeon, haven't you, David, saying, decide now. It is a thought. 
experiment, as it were. Um, and the, and, the, and, and, and the, the question is very fair, but assume, assume that toxicity, all those sort of things are equal between the two options. The essential difference is that one gives you the 50-50, the other gives you a period of remission. In all other respects, you can take them to be equivalent. And then the question is, for you personally here now, what would be your minimum that you'd, you'd want from that treatment B, uh, given that all other things are equal? Okay? Is that, is that fair? I mean, it's deliberately a simplified scenario, but of course not a million miles from the much more complex scenarios we all face in real life. Any other questions on the, on the task? Are you all happy to have a go at writing down a figure? And as with the first exercise, write your own figure down before you discuss with, an, with your neighbour. Don't, don't do it as a corporate exercise. I'm ready. I'm ready, yeah. This is the best we've got, is it? Yeah. Green is right. Is it? Okay. Where's the green one? Oh, here. Judging by the level of noise, it means that you, you probably all decided a number and are discussing it. So just to speed up the next bit, I'm going to just go through everybody and just say, can you give us your number X? Uh, Chris, can we start with you? I just took, I took eight, ten years. I don't eight to ten years. Ten years. Ten years. Claire? Thirty? Twenty? Twenty? Thirty. Thirty. The people not deciding are there. Sorry, I can't see you pointing it, but I said ten. Ten next to you. Twenty next to Shishma. Thirty. Thirty. Ten. Twenty. Twenty. None. Okay, you're going to go for the other option. Fifty-fifty, Linda. Twenty. Next to you. 30. 30, David. 20. Next row down. Five. Five. Next. 30. B, other B. 22. 22. 22. Okay. <laughs> 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. 20. I thought it depended on how old I was. Well, how old are you are today? Can we tell everyone? Half of my life expectancy is what I was trading. Which is? You don't have to do that, he's stopped being the digital director. Next year. Sorry? 20. 20. 50. 50. B. 15. B, 30, 30, 30, 30, 10, 30, B, another B, oh, okay. Next row down. 10, 40, 15, 15, 15 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, 12
So, so but, actually, can we, can all right. we, just before we show that, can we get a couple of reasons? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so take somebody who did the very low one. Somebody in a somebody had said one or two years. Simon, you had twelve months. No, no, it's a tissue who said twelve months. Right. So you're short. So the tissue is example of a short term. Yes. Why? Why did you choose that? Um, well, I, uh, um, I'm very tempted by the deal. Affairs. Anything on the bucket list? Not particularly. Actually, just administration. Someone had six months. It's not the same basis. Take six months to set all the affairs. Right. Someone had 50 years? Yes. Maybe 17, so I'm going to retire. You're not going to be able to retire 67 years. But someone's got to pay my pension. <laughs> okay. Someone with 20 years? I agree with the same model with Dr. Jones. Yeah, I think you got longer. But like I said, Okay, so very logical. I'll settle for half. Okay. Uh, you had five years? I did. Yes. Well, I, I mean, the same argument about you know, young people are clearly going to have a different perception from people who are a bit older. So, I think I, you had the, so there was no simple answer to the question. There was a young person who had a, a year or something, somewhere down there. What, two years? Oh, yeah, go back. I was a young snowboarder in the middle summer. I do frequently with a very important part of my life. I mean, I've got this date where we're no longer physically fitting up to do that. And reckoning all for about twenty years, I would then seriously be less interested in the art. Sanjay, what did you pick? Yeah. Don't like uncertainty. Okay. You've changed the surgery. So what are we talking about here? I've written, I've written up some some of the answers. So we some of the people choosing B are saying actually for me I wouldn't want the uncertainty, whatever it is. You know the idea of forty years hence this that cliff waiting for me. I couldn't live with that. Um, several of you talked about wanting to settle things, your affairs, what are important to you. Gear would allow me to do that. Um, when, when, when we get into the middle here, people are saying, well, actually, for me, I'd make the logical choice. And if I can't have at least half my expected lifespan, I'd rather go for a 50-50. But others in that middle section, there's Jack in the back talking about, he said, snowboarding is really important in my life. And once I've got to that stage, I'd be happy to go kind of thing. Uh, and then um, 
somebody over there was talking about, I want to live long enough to retire. Retirement's what I'm... I'm I think once so what are we talking about here? What links are these things? What's, going, what's actually driving your decision? Yes, it is expectations, but isn't it a bit more than that? I mean, expectations could just be we expect tomorrow to hear about the referendum or something. So these are more personal, are they? Personal values. But look, this is, this is the point. You've had the chap here was saying, well, we want more information. Actually, we've got an artificially simple evidence base for this decision. And yet we've got from that artificially simple evidence base a range from zero, I'd always go for B, through to 50 years, with a very diverse range in the middle. What's that being driven by? By the diversity of our individual values. If this is true in the artificial context of this, this, this very simple evidence base, and we're actually in an academic meeting rather than personally facing this individually, how much more is it going to be true in the reality of practice? So this is an exercise about saying, actually, um, this is a gr the graph Ashok was showing you. Is this is a I think it was from medical students, was it this one? So this is a group of medical students, very similar age background. You get the same diversity of responses. Have I time to tell the uh, the story? Um, Would you sure. want to tell the story? No, we'll just <laughs> okay. Move on, I think. So it's about linking science with people. Yeah, we need the evidence base. We need the science. When we've got that, we still have to think, how does that work for this particular individual in front of me now? That's where the skills of values-based practice connect with our skills as scientists and clinicians, experts. We're not the first to say this. Do any of you recognize this rather wonderful book? David Sackett's book, when he was the first director of the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, um, this book is still around. It's now edited by Sharon Strauss. David died a couple of years ago, sadly. Um, <clears throat> does, anybody, does anybody know how David defined evidence-based medicine in this book? Remember, he was writing 25 years ago as the director of the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. So we think of evidence-based medicine as being about best research data, best evidence in that sense. And indeed it is, but this is how they defined it. It's about taking that best evidence, linking it up with our experience as clinicians and with our patients' values in making decisions. And that book, if you read it, actually what they use is more a health economic type approach to working with values. Um, and David sadly, uh, as I said, died a couple of years ago, but we were in touch with him by email and he said to us about this work on values-based practice, I'm delighted you're doing evidence-based medicine, uh, because what he saw was that this was the part of evidence-based medicine that had got dropped. So you can approach this through the lens of evidence-based medicine, and you get to the same point that David got to 25 years ago. And this is how David Sackett defined uh, patients' values. We mean the unique it's that individually unique preferences, concerns, and expectations each patient brings to a clinical encounter, and which must be integrated into clinical decisions if they are to serve the patient. And that's the model. We're linking science with people. Um, we've got a lot of talk about person-centered care. Actually, this is where the partnership comes in delivering person-centered care. Ashok, I'm going to hand over to you for the 
How, what does this mean in surgery? Um, so, uh, if you look at surgery of old, some of you will recognise this character. And uh, if you're younger and don't, you know, there's a good YouTube uh, uh, video of his ward round. And, and I'm pleased to say that the surgeons in this institution don't uh, generally behave like that. But that's how people got selected into surgery by some of those things on, on, on this slide. But there are pitfalls with that uh, mode of working uh, in surgery, and, and you, you can you can delude yourself uh, very easily as to uh, what worth you give to what you do at work. Um, but actually that's not what surgery is about. What surgery is about, uh, and for man you can read every woman or man, uh, it is about knowing your limitations. Uh, and what surgery isn't about is turning up in clinic or in the emergency room and the operating theatre and thinking like this. And um, so, so that was really the, the, the background to that. And what we decided to do is that I met Bill, who was telling me about his work in mental health and, and with Ed Peel, who many of you all know in, in primary care. Uh, and I said, well, actually, you know, maybe we are doing some of this, we think, in surgery, but we need to think harder about it. And it seemed to me that uh, in a very simplistic model, there are really only three types of decisions to make in the outpatient clinic or the emergency room. Uh, one where there was clearly an evidence base that one mode of uh, 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 treatment was uh, had significant benefits to the patients, minimal risk, and that would be something that you could recommend. So, for example, uh, symptomatic carotid disease greater than 70%, it'd be very easy to recommend a carotid endotrectomy for the vast majority of patients. And at the other extreme, where the patient was either wanting a particular treatment or uh, thought that you might be recommending, uh, where the evidence was clearly that the risk far outweighed any benefit. So you might say someone claudicating at a mile uh, who wants a bypass, and you'd say, well, actually, uh, I'm much more likely to do harm than good, and I'm going to decline this treatment. Uh, and uh, you can sometimes see that, you know, you can see patients are unhappy. And my practice has always been to say, would you, I can see you're unhappy with this, would you like a second opinion? And for a long time, I used to say, you could see any one of my, at that point, four colleagues uh, in Oxford. Uh, and, and I carried on doing that until about three years ago, when one of the patients said to me, well, of course you'd say that, because they're all your mates, aren't they? They'll say exactly the same as you. So I now offer them a second opinion from any vascular surgeon uh, in the UK of their choice and offer support. But of course, the vast majority of patients in the middle, where there might be a number of options, and I thought I was doing a really good job by saying to the patients, you're going to have treatment A or B or C. An example might be for varicose veins. You could have uh, nothing. You could have stockings. You could have foam. You can have laser. And give them the pros and cons. Say, you can choose whichever you like, and I'll support you. Uh, but the experience of me and many of my colleagues, and many of you, I'm sure, is that patients will, about two-thirds of the time, turn around and say, well, what would you do, doctor? Uh, and I'd merrily been giving them my advice. Uh, and, uh, and, and I realized after meeting Bill that uh, that was based entirely on my values, what I thought I would want, not necessarily what the patient would want. Uh, and so we planned a series of surgical seminars. Uh, we've run seven specialty seminars to date, uh, using the content of the stuff that you've gone through today, the three-word exercise, force choice exercises. And then we've asked the clinicians to bring along some case-based discussions. And it's not just been the surgeons, it's been the whole multidisciplinary team, ward nurses, patient groups, um, specialist nurses, 
uh, radiographers, physios, OT, speech therapists, when we've done things like ENT and head and neck uh, surgery. Uh, so, so far the feedback's been very positive. The teams have been very keen to have follow-up seminars. Uh, they were asked us to go back to their group meeting or their annual away days. Uh, we've gone on to run seminars for trainees in the School of Surgery, the Educators Forum, uh, and a number of other allied uh, health professions across the Thames Valley uh, and, and, and further uh, out beyond that. So how has it changed my practice? Uh, well, I think the way to do it is that the answer I now give when someone says, well, what would you do, doctor? I say, well, it's really interesting that you should ask me that question, Mrs. Jones. Now, if you tell me what's important to you, together we can work out which of these five options might suit you best. Uh, and, and so that's the one thing that's changed uh, in the clinic. And I've been doing that now for two years since, uh, since uh, I met Bill. Ashok, thank you very much. So we've, we've talked about um, the skills-based values-based practice. Ashok's given you a bit about how this plays out in the context of a busy surgical outpatient clinic. Um, Montgomery. Well, um, I suppose most of us, um, dare I say, Mikey, shudder when we hear there's yet another legal judgment uh, telling us what we should be doing in medicine. But actually, uh, Montgomery is rather helpful to us in a way that I don't think has become fully apparent yet. Um, what's it about? Well, it's a Supreme Court ruling. It, it was um, in, in April 2015. Um, it's a Scottish case, but it applies to the UK as a whole. And um, it's um, something that as it filters through, is really going to, well, we say change everyone's practice. I think what we're, what we're hoping is that it will actually give us elbow room to practice in the way that we, we would want to practice. So what's the case about? Well, it's actually a caesarean section case. Um, there was a lady, Mrs. Montgomery, um, who uh, was diabetic, and she was having a baby under the care of Dr. McClellan. Uh, and uh, as, as, as you will know, uh, women with diabetes tend to have large babies and there's an approach that says, well, actually, you should go for a cesarean because there's a risk of, of, uh, of, of, of damage with a vaginal delivery. Um, and the um, problem was that uh, Dr. McClellan, and it was acknowledged by the court that Dr. McClellan was a very good and caring obstetrician, took the view that she wouldn't discussed cesarean as an option with her diabetic women patients because her experience was that if she did, they opted for cesarean section, and in her view, that was not the right way to go with this, uh, with this condition. And sadly, the baby was born with quite serious disability, and that's why um, Mrs. Montgomery uh, uh, sued the Lanarkshire Health Authority. So what did the Supreme Court decide? Well, Essentially, it, it acknowledged that um, Dr. McClellan had done what many of her colleagues would do, not tell the patient this. But they took evidence from a number of medical bodies, including the GMC, and what they said was, look, okay, that was okay 20 years ago. Where practice has got to now, it's not good enough for you as the clinician just to decide that you won't discuss an option with the patient, assuming that it's a, it's a, a non-futile option. So the judgment broadly marks this shift from saying the basis of consent is what a prudent clinician would do to saying, in a broad sense, it's what a prudent patient would want, right? 
And what that means in detail is spelled out in this, it's a long but actually clinically very helpful judgment. It doesn't mean, and it really doesn't mean bombarding the patient with yet more information, long lists of side effects, a lot of detail. It doesn't mean having to offer the patient or accept, as Ashok's described, there are situations where patients read something in the Daily Mail or a friend of theirs had something, it's a futile treatment. They don't use the phrase evidence-based, but what they're actually saying is, our expertise as experts is entirely relevant to the range of decisions that's discussed. What it does mean, and these are terms that are actually in the judgment, it means engaging in dialogue. Ashok's described how he's built that into his own way of working in a busy outpatient clinic. It doesn't have to be a long-winded dialogue, but in some way engaging in dialogue. And the aim of dialogue is that the patient will have sufficient understanding of the risks and benefits of the non-futile options available so that a decision can be made, and this is uh, Lady Hale's own phrase, which is the Deputy President of the Supreme Court, that takes into account her own values, the patient's own values. She was referring to Mrs. Montgomery. Now notice that it's not saying the patient's values drive the decision regardless. What it is saying is that our role as clinicians is to engage in that dialogue so that the patient's, to the extent the patient wishes, the patient has sufficient understanding that the patient's values can be taken into account in the decision that's made. Now, remember that from our first choice exercise we've just done, um, however likely it seems to somebody who might choose option B that that's the natural thing to choose, there's going to be a whole range of other choices that people want to make driven by the uniqueness of their individual values. So what this is adding is an element to the shared decision-making that is saying our expertise is crucial to what's going on, but so also is the uniqueness of that individual patient's values, and we need to find ways of building that into the clinical encounter. So, one take on Montgomery, and uh, of course, like all these things, there are other possible takes, is that what is actually mandating is a shift from um, a shift to an approach that is combining values and evidence-based practice. Um, it's about recognizing the diversity of our individual values when we're patients and making these difficult decisions. It is about working within the expertise of clinicians and, and ourselves as experts. It's not about futile options. It's feasible. Um, Ashot's given us an example of how a, a tweak to practice can actually embody this really important shift in the way that we make decisions. Um, and we have a conference on this later in the year in Oxford um, that uh, Baroness Hale is, is, is kindly going to uh, talk at a, a, as one of our keynote speakers. So we think Montgomery is an opportunity, not a threat, um, and glad to pick up that further in, in discussion. And I think, Mikey, you're going to talk a bit about this as well. So what have we covered? Well, values and values-based practice, key message, individual diversity. Values-based practice is one of a number of resources for working with values that's focusing very much on the skills base of picking up on that diversity in a process about balanced decision-making, and that's bringing 
values-based practice together with the process of evidence-based practice in this concept of person-centered care. Um, Ashrot's given us an example of how this plays out in surgery. Um, we're finding that uh, we had a little more time in these seminars than we've had this morning, so we would be spending a bit more time on those interactive exercises. We'd be looking with people at cases and then coming back to practice. This seems to work for people. Um, Montgomery is giving us what we can think of as a bit of legal elbow room to practice in this values as well as evidence-based way. Uh, this is our website at St. Catherine's College. If you want to look up more about this, valuesbasedpractice.org will get you as much information as you might want. And um, Mikey, I'm going to hand over to you, if you would, uh, for a brief commentary, and then we have time for discussion. Thank you. I want to make sure we have time for discussion, so I won't speak for very long. Um, as, as Bill said, you know, people like me, we get, probably get too overly excited by our highest cause in the land, spending a lot of time and effort thinking about ethical values in healthcare. But actually, I think what's interesting about the judgment, and I think what we want to encourage you to reflect on, is this challenge when we have a new legal precedent that endorses a certain set of commitments um, around a particular problem in, in, in the real world and aims to translate that to provide more general guidance that can help you in making decisions in working with patients in certain kind of ways around consent. And that translation, the general lessons to be learned for practice from a particular individual case, is not straightforward, but I think, as Bill said, the values-based practice model is one way of thinking about how we might do that translating. Um, the challenge, I think, for me as well is the ways in which this signifies something about an evolution between the law and the profession as a whole. Um, and one thing I think worth remarking on is the relationship between the judgment itself and the, the, the move within the profession and the regulator, the GMC in particular, to shape its requirements on, on professionals to, um, to obtain consent in certain kinds of ways. Now, there's been a bit of a dispute, I think, amongst commentators about what the relationship between the significance of the Montgomery judgment is, and the GMC's own guidance, long-standing as it is really now, on consent, from the judges themselves saying, look, in a, in a sense we're playing catch-up with the way in which the GMC has endorsed a far more person-centered approach than the, the law and consent formally um, allowed for, um, to those who say, well, actually, no, there's some quite important distinctions between what the GMC require and what Montgomery is advocating for in its, its attempt to, to, to translate the person-centered dimensions of consent more clearly. My view is actually that we there's a quite an important distinction between thinking that Montgomery is merely the endorsement of the GMC's requirements on consent. Um, an important difference, I think, for me, is that the Montgomery requirement in, in, in enabling the consent process to be uh, person-centered in a particular kind of way is the emphasis on tailoring precisely what you tell and offer your patients um, in light of what the patient themselves expresses as important to them. Now that, in many regards, I think, is really the, 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 the raising of respect for autonomy to its most significant level in, in consent, medical consent law um, thus far. Um, this idea of precisely tailoring the information you share to the patient's values in the context of evidence and such like as Bill has described is a very different kind of set of recommendations than the GMC put forward, which is much more about here are the kind of things that patients uh, may want to know and in taking a person-centered approach, make sure you tell them these kinds of things. So no attempt to tailor in a, in a, in a sort of sophisticated way what 
the patient's values might point to being told, but rather a catch-all approach to say, look, if we tell patients these kinds of things, we are patient-centered in that kind of way. So I think that the tailoring um, orientation, as I call it in the Montgomery judgment, is going to pose some challenges to the GMC in terms of what it does with its consent guidelines moving forward. And it, of course, poses problems to professionals in thinking about how both ethically to do that tailoring in what I take to be time uh, limited and, and, and difficult um, in, in the context of building a sort of relationship and dialogue within which you can do that tailoring in a way that meets the legal requirements. But also the way that might throw up its own moral problems in the ways in which you work with patients um, in battle and balance the, the, the values of the patient with, with the evidence that sits behind it.